podcast uses profanity and topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listen at your own risk. Welcome back to Hell and Hills Podcast. I'm Bryce. I'm Amanda. And welcome to our Valentine's episode. Yay! We're not good at shouting out holidays, but we done did it this time. We remembered. Bryce remembered. I've been trying to label them on, on our calendar. However, in the past, it has not changed anything. I still forget. Yes. Yeah, so, anyways, that's all I got for you. How are you? Pretty good. How about you? I'm doing good. I had my post-op appointment this week. Okay. I'm listening. Um, it went well. So. Oh, that's good. Basically, so he's like, your incisions are healing great. And I was like, okay, good. Because I don't know how they wouldn't be healing great. Anyways. Yeah, that sounds like good news. Um, he's not sure where all the scar tissue came from. He's like, no clue. But we got it out. So it doesn't really matter. And then we were talking about options. And he basically said our chances of IVF working are increased by 50% after the surgery. Holy shit. Okay. Huge. So still doing IVF. He said like the chances of um, like other things working like IUIs or anything like that are it's possible. But he said the issue is, is that their percentage for success didn't increase that much. And he said, had we n- not had to take one of the fallopian tubes, it might have been more of a greater success rate for those. But we did have to take one. So that causes other complications. So that's where we're at. That's really the only update I have for you. I held back. I didn't tell you about it on purpose. No, yeah. I had absolutely no idea. Yeah, no, I was like, Amanda's going to want to hear. And I don't want to repeat it 6,000 times. So, okay, fair. you know. Well, I'm really happy for you. I'm sorry to hear about the... Uh scar tissue i had it's gone now also it's really good that it was scar tissue and not endometriosis because the scar tissue is not going to grow back true okay fair point that's just so random like where does that come from he said there's a lot of different things he's like any infections like in the area could have caused it which a few years ago i did have this was actually like a while ago i had a an infection in the fallopian tube that is now gone. I had an infection in that one a few years ago, but he's like, I don't know if it really came from that one because that was targeted for your fallopian tube. But yeah, he's like, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, I don't know either. So cool, cool, cool. Hey, who cares? It's not an issue anymore. I was like, well, it's gone. We're good now. But yeah, that's, I was fine with the news. I was, actually, I was more than ecstatic with that because I don't know that I've ever gotten good news from that doctor and I'm taking this as good news. Yes. So I, I think it sounds like good news. Like, you know, hey, there's a shit ton of scar tissue in here, but we got it out. Hey, right. It's gone now. We don't got to yeah. worry about it. So I'll take it. I'll take it as a win. Yeah, that's that's really all I've got. I'm trying to think of any other updates. What did I do this week? Nothing. I didn't do it. I, I decided I probably shouldn't have gone back to work on Monday just because it like I was miserable, so exhausted. I was oh. And by the end of the day, I was just like so tired. Basically, every day this week, I have gone to bed early, except for yesterday. Did you actually go in or did you at least work from home? I work from home. Okay, good. That's at least good. I don't go in if I don't have to. (laughs) Like, if there's not a reason for me to be in office, I'm not going to be there. My poor plants at my desk are probably dead. I should take a plant. I should do that. I took one home. I've got to take one home. My boss gave me one that was dying, but we're we're bringing her back around. She's doing good now. Oh, what's her name? Priscilla. 
She's a peace lily, so it seems like it fit for some reason. <laughs> that does seem like it fits really well, actually. <laughs> we'll see if she blooms, but right now yeah. we're uh, the leaves were like this, and now they're up again. So I think we're on the right track. <laughs> she looks significantly less droopy. And you're going to take that as a win. Oh, hell yeah. I don't blame you. I just keep messaging my coworkers and be like, hey, are you in office? Hey, can you water my plants? <laughs> If they do, I don't know, but they tell me they will, so. You're going to get there and they're just all going to be dirt. You're going to be like, what the hell, guys? We had a deal. I only care about one of them, and I'm hoping it's more resilient than that. So I'm just going to go in next week sometime and pick that one up and bring it home. <laughs> Dolores deserves to come home. Oh, Dolores is another good plant name. I know, name. it was a good plant name. So I like that a lot. Yeah. Anyways, um, that's all I've got. Uh, we were iced in this week. We had some crazy weather. Oh, I saw the Snapchats. I was mesmerized by the trees. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that, but I think it's probably more because it just snows. Like, it's not quite the same. We got a little bit of snow, but no, it was just all ice. And it was it was so crazy because the picture of the Snapchat I sent Bryce was just the tree limbs because obviously there's no leaves. So just the limbs of the trees are just covered in ice. And it was just the prettiest thing. And the dogs were like, what the hell is this? They weren't really fans. Well, the, well Maple probably loved it. She did, but she did not have good footing because it was ice. There was no give, just slip. Uh, that's fair. She was not having it. But other than that, once she got inside and she got traction again, she's like, oh, hell yeah. This is my jam. This is the best thing I've yeah. ever done in the entire world. Now, Buck, he loved it. He, we put him out on the back porch and he ran back and forth, slipping and sliding. He didn't care. And Annie watched through the window and just loved every minute of it. It was like best day ever. I've never heard her laugh that hard. That's a lie. But that was one the top three. <laughs> I mean, as long as you take it, right? Yeah. Okay. So this is our Valentine's episode. So this one should come out. On the 12th, do you and James have any fun plans for Valentine's Day? Oh, uh, we have nothing. Oh. <laughs> I got you said that was like, oh. <laughs> you know what? If it makes you feel better, Cody hasn't even asked me to be his Valentine yet. And it's February. Will you be my Valentine? I'll be your Valentine, yeah. Take that, Cody. <laughs> He'll it. never hear this. It's fine. He's it's not... fine. You've... I still beat you to it. Yeah, so I got to tell him when he asks me, I got to decline. See, get in I line, bud. Valentine. <laughs> Too late. Well, that feels like a him problem for not asking. Yeah, they can be Valentines. They can be each other's. Yeah. Hey, you want to know what I just realized? What? We didn't look at who we were shouting out this week. Hi, Pakistan. Hi, Pakistan. We just decided that's who we're shouting out because we yeah. have a new listener in Pakistan. So that's really important today. Nobody else matters. Just Pakistan. Just you and Pakistan. Everyone matters. All of our listeners matter. Ignore Amanda. She's not, she's not very inclusive. I'm jaded. She might fit in with some of the people from my story today. Oh, that's does that's uncomfortable. <laughs> that's the last thing um, I ever want to hear. It's more because they're just clicky. Is your story mean girls? Yes. No. Oh, this sounds fun. Okay. No. Um, before we get into stories, we just want to shout out our Discord is up and going. We've got our Instagram, Hell on Heels Podcast, 
Twitter, Hell on Heels Pod, Facebook, Hell on Heels Podcast. We're working on getting all of the pictures from past episodes posted on those. I don't want to hear it. We're behind. I had surgery. I was sick. I didn't feel well enough to post on everything. Don't come at me. I don't I don't know what to tell anyone. But I'm working on it. Don't worry. But we'll be getting all of those pictures posted. And then we also have our Patreon up and going. So that's there. There's different levels of support if you want to support us there. Um, what else am I missing? Did I say Discord? Yeah, Discord's up yeah. there. Uh, you can email us stories, suggestions, whatever you really feel like. Helen Heels Podcast at gmail.com. Um, I think that's it. You want to hear a story? I uh, yeah, I'm ready. Okay. I'm super excited about the story. I I Googled Valentine's Day murders. Okay. And of course, what came up was the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Naturally. And so that's what we're doing. Oh, okay. <laughs> I love that you're like, naturally, okay, give me more. That's what we're doing. <laughs> I gave Amanda a teaser before we started. I was like, it involves Al Capone. And now you know why. I don't know how much of the story you know. Of Al Capone or of the no, Valentine's Day Massacre? The Massacre. Okay. Not much okay. on either. <laughs> on him or, or Al Capone or the Massacre. Oh, you don't know much about Al Capone? I know he got arrested for tax evasion. And he did a lot more than evade taxes, but oh, yeah, Broski did a lot more than. And I don't. Okay, I just fair warning. I'm not going into a lot of Al Capone's crimes here because okay. this is not a story about Al Capone. This is the Saint Valentine's Day massacre. Okay, just to clarify, Al Capone is his own his own thing. Like I could go on for days about him, but that's for another day. Yeah, that's not so. for today. We're only going to go on about him for a little bit today. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. So, I'm going to give some backstory about the Northside Gang, or the Northside Mob, whatever you prefer. And this Northside Gang was founded in 1919 by Dean O'Banion and Earl Jaime Weiss. The gang was a, an Irish-Polish-American gang, and they would be officially recognized when leader Dean O'Banion, when he starts to develop contacts with politicians and journalists. So people start recognizing this gang because he starts becoming more powerful. Um, during the Prohibition, the Northside Gang would take control of existing breweries and distilleries on the north side of Chicago. And they would have almost a monopoly on the local supply of beer and whiskey at this time because they had taken over so much and they were just in control of all of these distilleries. What year was this? I'm sorry. This is in the 19... So they're established 1919. So this is like 1920s, early 1920s. Oh, so they're like... They're working through Prohibition. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Prohibition, Prohibition too. Yeah. So that's, it was during the Prohibition where they would take control of the breweries and distilleries in the oh, North. So side. they're being sneaky with, mm -hmm. they're, okay. We're plotting. They're setting I'm up for speakeasies, it. all this type of stuff, right? They would take control of the 42nd and 43rd Ward within just a couple of months of their rise. Um, some of their gang activities would include bootlegging, which that's the alcohol, burglary. They would run illegal gambling operations election fraud because how else did O'Banion keep his political ties? <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. Duh. And they did have from what sources said a higher moral regard compared to some other other rivals and this was because they refused to traffic in prostitution. Oh, Okay, so, so these are reportedly these are the good guys of the bad guys. Sure. <laughs> reportedly. I didn't find anything else. There's only just statements about it. I, mm -hmm. I wasn't alive then, so I don't know how true that is. All I'm saying is if I wanted to get in trouble with a mob, it would probably be this one. 
Yeah, probably. If I had to choose. If you had to. Well, I mean, maybe not, because they probably would just kill you anyways. Perfect. (laughs) Now, the Northsiders, as they're known, they did have some ins with the police, and they would, for the most part, have some protection from the Chicago Police Department. O'Banion would be arrested and charged with burglary in 1922. So, I mean, they didn't have full protection, but they did have some. Um, But they had so much protection from the police that in 1924, the Chicago police reportedly assisted the Northside gang in robbing the Sibley Distillery. What? Hold on. Yeah. (laughs) So how did they assist? Do we know? Did they just like Um, set up a, a roadblock or were they actually like busting windows? From how I understood it is they planned a raid and they invited the Northsiders to come and the Northsiders kind of did their thing. And police huh. were raiding. Okay. So that's how I understood it. I didn't go into a lot of details there, mostly because it's not the focus. But yeah. Huh. Okay. So it's just a ride along. It's fine. Yeah. No big deal. It's fine. Yeah. Now, the gang's biggest rival was obviously the Southside Gang or the Chicago Outfit. The Chicago Outfit is made up of Italian Americans and has associations with Johnny Torrio and Al Capone. Do you know who Johnny Torrio is? I have absolutely no clue okay johnny Torrio is basically the mentor mentor for al capone so he's like a huge m- mobster like oh. he taught al capone a bunch of stuff and so really the chicago outfit is johnny Torrio and al capone's gang right like they're running it. okay another gang of gangs yeah it's a gang the lingering hostility between the gangs would grow i mean obviously they're rival gangs and they just they don't like each other and it grows because O'Banion, he refuses to sell any distilleries to the Southsiders or to the Chicago Outfitters. And so their tensions keep rising there. And O'Banion is kind of known to insult the Italians. And in some reports, he's insulting them to their faces. Oh, so he has cojones. He has zero shits to give. Oh, he's okay. like, all right, whatever. He has zero shits and zero distilleries to give. To the zero distilleries he but he does have some uh beer shipments that he steals from the Southsiders, and then he would oh. sell them back to who they were supposed to be going to that's not how you make friends my grandpa did that to his grandpa as a child it definitely maybe not like the greatest way to make friends but what do i know so you can see that these tensions are just rising and not only is it with the chicago outfit but the North Side mob or gang, they also have some conflict with other ethnic groups as well. So th- they're not only making enemies with one group. They're kind of just the outside gang. They hate yeah. everybody. Okay. Yeah. They hate everyone equally. And you know what? Me too. Yeah. Okay. So. Can't hate them for that. Yep. Uh, eventually, for some time, the Southsiders and the Northsiders, they would have this uneasy alliance. And this is in the early 1920s. Uh, O'Banion kind of starts testing the alliance uh, by demanding members of the Southside repay a $30,000 gambling debt. Oh. Yeah. From what I could find, it seemed like the debt technically should be allowed mm-hmm. as part of their alliance. But just to ease tensions, Johnny Torrio, he's just convinces this gang member to pay the debt back. And he's like, let's pay the damn debt back and move on. Okay. Okay. Again, he's he's definitely, Banyan is testing some waters here. Um, and he's maybe not testing the greatest of waters here. 
because he would go on to set up Johnny Torrio during the purchase of a Northside brewery. Oh, to set him up how? So on May 19th, 1924, Torrio was supposed to go in to inspect this property, this brewery that he would be purchasing, and police would raid the place. With their friends? Well, not, yeah, basically. Oh. This this was set up by O'Banion, and Torrio would be arrested, and Torrio, he's had enough, and he's like, O'Banion's gotta go. So sorry, we can't do this anymore with O'Banion. His orders go through on November 10th, 1924. O'Banion would be shot in his flower shop by some Chicago outfitters. Okay, that's like really wholesome that he has a flower shop. I was gonna be like that he was shot in a flower shop. That's kind of no. That's that's a really bad pun that I did not mean to make. Okay. Uh I just meant like the fact that he has a flower shop. Granted, whether it's whether it's for money laundering or not. I think it's cute that this man has his, he's a florist. He's got a hobby. Yeah. Well, this begins a gang war. And it is the North, the North Siders and the Chicago Outfit, again, run by Johnny Torrio. And after O'Banion's death, the North Siders basically form like a governing council with Jaime Weiss as the leader. And then you've got Drusy and Morin, not far behind in ranking. So there's a lot of attempts on Torrio's and Al Capone's lives. And these are ordered, obviously, by the Northsiders. One attempt actually drove Torrio to retirement, and he left the gang to Al Capone and moved off. Some reports said to Italy, and others said to Brooklyn, New York. Yes. Yeah, how does one just retire from mobbery? You move out of state, far enough away. Oh, so you just go into witness protection. Well, I mean, I had reports of him being in either Italy or Brooklyn. So I didn't look any further. Those were just different reports. And I said, cool, I believe it, whatever. Did they just pick the two most polar opposite places? (laughs) Maybe it was like Little Italy in Brooklyn or something. And I just am uncultured. I don't know. But I I also didn't do too much digging. Because again, I think Johnny Torrio could be his own story. Okay. Yeah, probably. Yeah. In this final attempt, just to give you an idea, like, Torrio was actually severely wounded. Again, I didn't get a lot of details, mostly because I couldn't find them. So in all of the violence, Jaime Weiss and Vincent Drusi, they would lose their lives. And the Northsiders would ultimately be left to the care of George Bugs Morin. And we're going to start getting into nicknames, because let me tell you, anytime I saw a nickname, I was like, write it down. Oh, the mob has the best nicknames. Best. We need mob nicknames, even if we're not in the mob. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. I don't know where to start either, but uh, we need them. Anyways, so Morin takes over and he gets this call and he plans to raid a shipment of whiskey supplied by Detroit's Purple Gang. And from what I could find, the Purple Gang was actually associated with Al Capone and the Chicago outfit. Okay. They're busy. I need them to calm down a little bit. Listen, uh, not my choice here. Morin and his men plan to meet at the SMC Cartage Warehouse. And they're supposed to meet there at 10.30 on February 14th, 1929. Morin himself had planned to be there, but he slept in that morning and was running a little behind. Now, on February 14th, 1929, at 10.30 in the morning, at the Northsiders Garage at 2122 North Clark Street in Lincoln Park, Chicago, seven men associated with the Northside gang would be killed. Of these men, five of them were part of the gang. The other two were just associates, like they weren't actually in the gang. The victims, Moran's second in command, and his brother-in-law, Albert Kachelik. I don't know if that's right. I'm sorry. 
Um, bookkeeper and business manager Albert Weinshank, gang enforcers Frank Hockey, uh, Gausenberg, Peter Goosey, Goosenberg, um, Adam Heyer, I don't know what his position was, um, and then the gang associate, associate Reinhardt Schwimmer and another associate John May. So these seven men were all murdered. It sounds like they took out like a lot of important people. Yeah. According to witnesses, a Cadillac sedan would pull up to the front of the garage and four men would exit. Two of these men were reportedly in police uniforms and the other two were wearing suits, ties, overcoats, hats. Like, they were dressed pretty nice. The men would enter the rear of the garage and here they would find the member of Moran's gang. And they would line up these all seven men along the wall. Presumably they are dressed as police and saying this is a raid and the men are compliant thinking, oh, this will blow over, right? Right. Well, the men dressed as police had been carrying shotguns, and then the men dressed as civilians were carrying something a bit more aggressive. The men in police uniforms would give the orders to the civilian dressed men who would pull out and open, open fire on the seven Northsiders with Thompson submachine guns. Oh, this is an execution. Yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah. These guys were thorough. Shooting left or right and continuing to shoot all of the victims, even after they had hit the ground. Okay, overkill. They're ensuring their victory, I think. Oof, okay. Um, there were also two shotgun blasts heard, and the coroners confirmed later on that the faces of John May and James Clark. Um, God, which one is James Clark? I think that's Albert. I have it lower in my notes, and I forgot to add it. Anyways, those two like coroners were like, yeah, their faces were just a little bit destroyed oh my gosh witnesses witnesses would then see two police officers lead two well-dressed men to the car at gunpoint which is kind of brilliant since it gives illusion to the public that at the time police had things under control oh that is diabolical right i don't like it at all i don't uh, like it but it's brilliant like yeah i gotta give credit like that's pretty 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 dang smart and i will say these are witness reports saying this so other things will like we have a lot coming into play here soon when the actual police finally arrive on scene frank gusenberg gusenberg he was still alive despite having 14 bullet wounds what he would be taken to the hospital doctors would be able to temporarily stabilize him police would try to question him but when asked who shot him he reportedly replied, no one shot me. So he's keeping up like this code of conduct between the mobs and he's taking it to his grave. What a badass. He would sadly pass away from his injuries just three hours later. Oh my God. So I wanted him to live after hearing that. No, I'm sorry. He's, he's still a victim. Now, reportedly this massacre was actually an attempt to kill Bugs Morin. Uh, I mentioned him earlier, and I mentioned that he had been running late that morning, right? Like, he woke up a little late. He was supposed to be there. Oh, no. Yeah. Now, Bugs and fellow gang member Ted Newberry, they were approaching the warehouse when they spotted a police car near the building. And instead of going to the warehouse, he and Ted turn around. They go to a nearby coffee shop. Not dealing with it. It'll blow over in a few minutes. And they also, any gang members that they encounter on their way, they're like, turn around. Shoo, shoo. On your way, not knowing what was happening. They just thought it was a police car, right? Oh, no. And there was also one Northside gang member, Willie Marks, who had 
just about made it to the warehouse when he spotted the police car. And he said he would take this as an opportunity to actually get the car's license plate number. So smart. Handy later on. And really, at this point, Bugs is just a very lucky man. Like, he was supposed to be there. He is the Bugs Bunny. Right? That's why he's called Bugs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's believed that Al Capone himself had ordered the massacre. There was already plenty of tension between Capone's gang and Bugs' gang. Capone and Morin had been fighting for control of the area for the bootlegging trade. Morin had been causing issues with Capone's uh, dog track that he ran in the Chicago suburbs. Uh, Morin had also taken several saloons that were run by Capone. And Morin insisted that these saloons were part of his territory. He's like, nope, my territory, north side, sorry. I don't get that. How do you just I take just, it? How do you I just, don't know. You just walk. Can you imagine going to Walmart and you're like, hey, you belong to me now. <laughs> right? Like, this Pay is your mine. Dues. Yeah. I don't know how it works, but he was like, these are mine. Some of Warren's men had also unsuccessfully attempted to murder Jack McGunn earlier that year. Um, and part of this was actually brothers Frank and Peter Gusenberg, who were at the massacre and unfortunately lost their lives. That is that had another nickname? Or is that his real name? Is he just really good with a gun? So they're like, McGunn over here. Uh, from what I could find, that was his actual last name. Unless I just typed it wrong. Oh, so well, he was just destined to be in a mob. Uh, I, think, I think it's McGurn. I'm sorry, I typed it wrong right there. Okay, well, he's McGunn now. Okay, I'm sorry. Jack McGunn, <laughs> new nickname, Jack McGunn, Gurn, McGurn. So they attempted to kill him, failed. The Northside gang had also been involved in the murders of Pasqualino, Patsy, Lalordo, and Anto- Antonio the Scourge Lombardo. The Scourge, okay. The Scourge. And both of these men were close associates with Al Capone. Now, the real question is, how did this massacre still happen when Morin wasn't even present? Like, obviously, they knew their target was Morin, right? Okay, yeah. The initial plan, obviously, was to lure Morin, and ideally a couple of his higher-ups, to the warehouse, right? And this was with that promise of a whiskey shipment that they could intercept, and blah, blah, blah. Well, all the Northside gang members were dressed to impress that day. And it's believed that one of Capone's lookouts mistook Albert Weinshank as Morin. They were said to be about the same height and build. They look kind of similar and they happened to be wearing the same color overcoat and hat that day. Oh. So, it's just believed that that was an accident. Like, Morin was believed to be there. Lookout calls, says, hey, he's there. Everything gets set into motion, but he actually wasn't. Now, the victims in their ranking. So, Peter Gusenberg, he was a frontline enforcer for Morin and so was Frank. Uh, Goose. I don't know if it's Gusen or Gussin. I'm going with, it's probably Gusenberg. Um, he was also an enforcer. You have Albert uh, Kachalak or James Clark, and this is Morin's second in command and also his brother-in-law. Adam Hayer is a bookkeeper and business manager. Albert Weinshank managed several cleaning and dyeing operations for Morin. Uh, Reinhardt Schwimmer is associated with the gang, but he was an optometrist who had left his practice to gamble on horses. So okay. living a life of crime now. Yeah, that's drastic. Right? Like, if you're an optometrist and you're like, bye, I'm going to go bet on horses. See you later. (laughs) John May, he was also an occasional car mechanic for the Morin game. So he he was just like, I'm getting paid. I don't care. But here you go. And of course, after this massacre, there is a public outcry. 
People want answers. People are believing and are suspicious that police were involved with this massacre because they saw uniformed officers leaving. And people are just scared. Now, this started to pose some issues for the mobsters and the gang members of the area. Because now police are trying to crack down and figure out what happened, right? Within days of this massacre, Al Capone actually received a summons to testify before Chicago Grand Jury. Uh, These were on charges of federal uh, probation violations. I'm not sure if those were related to him possibly being in Florida rather than Chicago at the time of the massacre. I'm not sure if he was supposed to be in Chicago and was in Florida, but he was reportedly in Florida. Capone actually told authorities he was too unwell to attend. So from what I could find, he didn't. And he would later be held in contempt for that. Okay, yeah, I was about to be like, I don't think that's an option. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that's an option, but Capone did it from what I could find. Okay. But I mean, they're pretty quickly like kind of cracking down. Police also knew that Morin had been hijacking hijacking Capone's liquor shipments in Detroit. This was just common knowledge. Like, people just knew this was happening. And police would focus their efforts. They're like, all right, well, we know Morin's doing this. And we know that the Purple Gang is pretty closely associated with Capone. So they start to focus their efforts on this Purple Gang. And this is actually a predominantly Jewish gang. Now, landladies, Mrs. Duty and Mrs. Orvidson. I love them so much. They would come forward and they're like, well, we took in three new tenants just 10 days before these massacres. And the rooms that they were rented, well, those were directly across the street from where the massacre happened. Oh, that's sketchy. Mm-hmm. And these landladies, would they would go out to pick out mugshots of people from the Purple Gang, which included George Lewis, Eddie Fletcher, Phil Keywell, and Harry Keywell. However... Going down the road, the landladies would later kind of waver in their attempts to identify the men, whether they got threatened or just were like, oh, I'm not sure now. I'm not. That's not clear. Just something happened where they're like, oh, I'm not sure if that's them. And police, they would question and clear Lewis Fletcher and Harry Keywell. Regardless of them being cleared, the men and the Purple Gang would be associated with the crime for just years to come. Now, on February 22nd, that same year, police would be called to a garage fire. And here they would locate a 1972 Cadillac sedan that had been disassembled and partially burned. Police were able to identify this as the car that the killers had used, likely with the help of um, Willie. License plate? Yeah, the license plate number. Oh, okay. Um, And also witness statements. So they were able to trace the engine number to a dealer, uh, to the dealer who had sold the car. And the dealer said that he sold it to a James Morton of Los Angeles. They're like, well, who the hell is James Morton? And the garage that was set on fire with the car was reportedly rented by a man named Frank Rogers. Now, Frank, he had given his address as 1859 West North Avenue. And this just so happened to be the address of a circus cafe operated by Claude Maddox. A circus cafe? I have circus cafe. So if that's a typo in my notes, I apologize. I'm pretty sure it's Circus Cafe. I want to go to a Circus Cafe. Have a little trapeze artist with my coffee. I don't know. Wait, trapeze artistry? Yeah, Circus Cafe. What is it? I don't know what it it is. It's a cafe. Well, I'm here for it, okay? (laughs) I don't know anything. I did not do any research on the cafe. I didn't think it would cause that much interest. I am... I don't know. I don't know why I'm interested. It's It's because I should have known. I should have known the moment I said circus, you'd be like, yes. Anyways, what's great about this is Claude Maddox, he is a gangster with ties to Al Capone's gang and the Purple Gang. And 
a St. Louis gang called Egan's Wrath. So he's got ties to all these places. Yeah, he's all over the place here. Yeah, so interesting that this Frank Rogers lists his address as the Circus Cafe, which is operated by him. Now, police, they couldn't find any more information on Dooms Morton or Frank Rogers. But they do start to get a lead on one of the, the potential suspects. Moments before the killings, a truck driver by the name of Elmer Lewis had, he turned a corner just about a block away from the massacre site, and he accidentally sideswiped a police car. He told police, he's like, I stopped immediately. I knew what happened. I stopped to figure things out. But when he stopped, the officers in the car just kind of like, go on. We don't need you here. Bye-bye. I would would be shitting myself. Right? I just sideswiped a police car and they're telling me to move on with my life. Bye. (laughs) Yes, sir. Right? Bye. Elmer noted that the... A uniformed officer or driver was missing a front tooth, and he gave some more descriptions. But not only had Elmer stopped, but there was a witness. Board of Education President H. Wallace Caldwell had witnessed the entire event, and he was able to give the same description of the toothless officer to police. And this leaves police to believe that this man is Fred Burke. Fred Burke was a former member of Egan's Rats, which is the same gang that. Claude Maddox is associated with. And Burke and his buddy James Ray were actually known to impersonate police when they were on their robbery sprees. Okay. He's also a fugitive. He was wanted for robbery and murder in Ohio. He doesn't feel to be very good at this. If he's supposed to be hiding. He's not caught right now. Yeah, but they are just unraveling this like a badly knit sweater. Well, that's what you think, but... Oh. I mean, (laughs) they've just got a description and they're like, yeah, that sounds like Fred Burke, but they don't have anything else, right? They're like, that's who it sounds like. Okay. And so please kind of start to theorize some different things. They're like, well, maybe this Joseph Lelordo was involved as one of the killers because... His brother recently died at the hands of the Northsiders. And like they just are, they have all these different theories. And eventually police would announce that they suspected Capone's gunmen to be John Scalise and Albert Anselmi and Jack McGurn and Frank Rio. They're like, we think these four are the actual people that went in and did the deed. And police, I mean, they they announced this and they would, I mean, they would charge McGurn and Scalise with the massacre. But Capone would have Scalise and Anselmi and one other man, Joseph Gunta. I don't know how to say his name. Capone had Scalise, Anselman, and one other man killed in May of 1929. This is reportedly after Capone had under uncovered a plan for them to kill him. So he's like, I'll kill you first. And so at this point, police are like, all right, well, two of the four people that we suspected are now dead. And... The other issue is they're forced to drop charges against McGurn due to a lack of evidence. They just didn't have enough. Yeah, yeah, you're right. This isn't going. Yeah, it's not. This going isn't going well. the way I, I originally thought it was. Yeah, sorry. Police would, however, charge him with a violation of the Man Act. And when I looked up the Man Act, it basically made it a felony to transport any woman or girl for the purpose of prostitution or de- debauchery or for any immoral purpose. Oh, go to hell, dude. McGurn. The one that was arrested for it, yeah. McGurn. Yeah, go to hell. 
Well, that might have been the purpose of the act. In practice, it was often used to prosecute unlawful premarital, extramarital, or interracial relationships. Gosh, okay. I don't even want to make any more comments. (laughs) In this case of McGurn, he had taken his girlfriend across state lines to get married. And so that's what they prosecuted him for. How in the... I don't know um, if they were an interracial couple. I couldn't find any pictures of them. And I couldn't find any more information. I just know that they did prosecute him for that. So that's dirty. With all of this, the case kind of grows cold until December 14th of 1929, which, by the way, December 14th is my dad's birthday. Happy birthday, Pod Father. He was not alive in 1929. Happy almost birthday. Yeah, he yeah, he had a while to go. Well, December 14th, 1929, the Berrien County, Michigan Sheriff's Department would raid the Michigan bungalow of Frederick Dane, a.k.a. Fred Killer Burke. Okay, that's my name. Fred Burke is the toothless, toothless man. Oh, the man that's missing the tooth. Yeah. The cop. Mr. Impersonate and Officer Man, yeah. Now, what happened? Burke had been drinking one night, and he rear-ended another car and drives off. He's like, be safe, not getting in trouble for this. And patrolman Charles Skelly would pursue him. And he's able to get Burke off of the road. And Skelly gets out of the car and he gets on the running board of Burke's car. Do you know what a running board is? Because I had to learn what that was. Yes, yeah, the thing that you step up on that goes down. Like a lot of times they're on SUVs. Yeah, it's like the step outside along, of the car. Mm-hmm, yeah. And a lot of times they go along the side of the car, which uh-huh. I'm sorry. He climbed onto this man's running board as he's fleeing from him. Well, he forced him off of the road, so he's, like, in a ditch right now. Uh Skelly forces Burke off of the road, gets out of his vehicle, gets onto the running board, and Skelly would be shot three times and die die due to his injuries later that night. Sorry, how did we get to point... How did we... How did we get here? Well, Skelly forces him off the road, and he's not Mm -hmm. moving. Burke's not... His car's not moving. But Skelly gets on the running board, and Burke just kind of, like, bang, 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 done. Oh. Was he not expecting him to have a gun or anything, though? I, he may not have known who was in the vehicle. Oh, I see. So he just, he's thinking, I've got to stop this drunk driver. It turns out it's oh. a, a murderer. Oh, man. Yeah. So Burke flees. The car would be found wrecked and abandoned just outside of St. Joseph, which is a town in the area. And the car would be traced back to Fred Danes, and by this time, police had already confirmed that Dane was, in fact, Fred Burke through different photos. Like, they driver's license, whatever other photos they had of Fred Dane matched photos of Fred Burke. So, they're like, well, we know who this is, right? We we 1,000% know who this is. And the police in Michigan at this time, they're like, well, we know he's wanted for the potential participation in the St. Valentine's mur- Massacre. And police would go on to raid Burke's bungalow, and they find this large trunk. Would you like to know what's in this trunk? Is it anything anatomical? No. Okay, cool. Let me have it. Okay. A bulletproof vest, almost $320,000 in bonds, which were recently stolen from a Wisconsin bank. Uh-huh. Two shotguns, two Thompson submachine guns. Uh-huh. And a thousand rounds of ammunition. So let's make some connections. We know that two of the two uh, men dressed as police officers had shotguns, and we know that the two men dressed as civilians 
had these Thompson submachine guns. Mm-hmm. Interesting that Fred Burke has them in his possession. And he's also the one that's known to dress up as a policeman while he's robbing banks. Yeah. Well, the St. Joseph authorities, they immediately notify Chicago police of their findings. And the Chicago police are like, hey, send both of those machine guns or the submachine guns over here. And they would use forensic forensic ballistics to identify both weapons as the ones used in the massacre. And the forensic ballistics was considered fairly new at the time, but they were able to utilize it to match the gun to the, the, the massacre bullets. Police also discover at this time that one of the submachine guns had also been used to murder New York mobster Frankie Yell a year and a half prior, which New York authorities were like, well, we kind of thought it was him already. We just had no proof. Yeah. And so at this point, this is the last piece of evidence that they're going to find in connection with the massacre. Now, Burke, where is he? He fled. He wasn't found at the scene when they found Officer Skelly's body. Well, he's not immediately captured. He would be found a year later on a Missouri farm. Oh, he got all the way out of Dodge. He was like, bye. I got Uh, chickens to feed. See you later. Yeah. And, well, since the strongest case against him was that of Officer Skelly, Burke would ultimately be charged for for this murder in Michigan. And he is sentenced to life imprisonment, and he would die in prison in 1940. Now, you might think, okay, well, that's the end of the story. They kind of ran out of leads here. They tried charging several people they believed to be connected, but they were murdered, already arrested in a different state, or just not enough evidence, right? Well, on January 8th, 1935, FBI agents would surround a Chicago apartment looking for the remaining members of the Barker gang. There would be a shootout. There would be the death of a bank robber, Russell Gibson. But they would take into custody Doc Barker, Byron Bolton, and two unnamed women. Bolton was a known associate of Egan's Rats. Which is one of the other mobs from St. Louis? Yeah, that's the St. Louis one. Egan's Rats was the one where the Circus Cafe was associated with it. Oh, that's why I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So Bolton was privy to many of the Barker gang's crimes. And he was also privy of other gang's crimes. Like, they were associated. And he would go on to tell police that he did take part in the St. Valentine's Day massacre with Fred Goetz, Fred Burke, and several others. At the time, the FBI had no jurisdiction in the state's murder case, and so they kept that little confession to themselves. Okay, that doesn't feel like that should be allowed, but yeah, um, here we are. Yeah, they kept it. that to themselves. But the Chicago American newspaper would soon get like a secondhand report of the confession, and they would publish it. They, this newspaper declared the crime solved, but they did report on what, what Bolton reported on. So, reportedly, this had been planned in October or November of 1928, the year prior. And Fred Goetz, Al Capone, uh, Frank Nitti, Fred Burke, Gus Winkler, Louis Campagna, Daniel Saratella, William Pacelli, and Byron Bolton would all meet at this resort, resort in Wisconsin. A lot of names, I know. But these are all gang members. That's what's wild to me. Like, what, what do y'all do in these gangs to where nobody says anything about this? I don't, I don't know if I want to know, actually. I don't want to know. How do you have that many friends and nobody's like, hey, Sarah, come here. Do you want to hear what Kelly just told me? Well, first of all, they're not girls. Secondly, Al Capone is... 
Well, Al Capone is also super powerful, so I'm sure people are fearful of him. Like, mm-hmm. don't get don't on Al Capone. On bad side. Yeah. Okay. And at this point, he's evaded police like enough that he's not been charged for murder or anything. Mm-hmm. So it's like I'm not gonna piss him off. But reportedly, all of these people, the million of people that I mentioned, they meet at a resort in Wisconsin. This, I believe this resort belonged to Fred Goetz. Um, and there, they would start planning the murder for Bugs Morin. And reportedly, these men stayed there for two to three weeks planning this murder. And between plotting the murder, they would hunt and fish and, you know, do the manly resorty things. Oh, just let's just take a break from this murder plot and go kill something else. Yeah, we got to practice, I guess. I don't know. According to Bolton, he and Jimmy Morin, uh, this Jimmy Morin is not associated or related to Bugs Morin. They were supposed to watch the garage where the massacre happened. So they were supposed to be watching and they were to phone the signal to the killers at the Circus Cafe when Bugs arrived. Bolton guessed that the actual killers were Burke, Winkler, Goetz, Bob Carey, Raymond Crane, oh, Raymond Crane Neck Nugent, Nugent, and Claude Maddox. So a total of four shooters and two getaway drivers. So that's his theory. Okay. According to Bolton, there were actually two vehicles. And one he saw there, the one that he claimed to have seen, he's like, there were only people dressed in plain clothes that I saw. And he didn't see anyone dressed as officers. And to corroborate this, there is actually a second car that was found owned by one of Claude Maddox. Claude Maddox is the owner of the Circus Cafe. And this car was found abandoned just days after the massacre, but at the time there was no indication it was involved. However, in the car they did reportedly find an address book belonging to one of the victims, Albert Weinshank. They still just didn't make a connection. Bolton claimed that they expected to be confronted by two to three men and not seven. So the gunmen made the decision to kill them all and just get out of Dodge. Like, get me out, we're done. Bolton claimed that he was in fact the one that misidentified Bugs Morin and had made the call to set the plan in motion. Don't know if I would claim that, but okay. Uh, well, at this point, Al Capone already knows that he misidentified him, right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so he's... It's not like Al Capone's like, oh yeah, he's dead. He's like, how the hell did he not die? And he's like, I made the call, and blah, blah, right? Uh, and Bolton actually was like, Capone was not thrilled with my little mistake here. Really? Yeah. And reportedly, Al Capone, like, threatened his life. He was like, sir, you done fucked up. However, reportedly, Fred Goetz would calm Capone down and be like, it's fine. It's fine. Calm down. We got some of the head honchos regardless. He better send Goetz a Christmas card that year. I would sure hope so. Every year. Now, Bolton's claims are actually corroborated by Gus Winkler's widow. Uh, At this point, Gus Winkler had already passed away. And in an official FBI statement and in her memoirs, she would go on and corroborate this. Um, Her memoirs were published in a four-part series in a true detective magazine during the winter of 1935 to 1936. I tried to find these, but my God, it was asking for a lot of money for them. So I said, no, thank you. And in her memoir, she actually revealed that her husband and his friends had formed a special crew for high-priority, high-risk jobs. And she called this crew, or they called the crew, the American Boys. 
So this was like a specialized murder crew. Bolton's statements would also be backed up by Chicago detective William Drury, who actually remained on the case longer than anyone else, like a bunch of other people had already given up, but he was still going. Later on, a bank robber by the name Alvin Carpus, he claimed to hear about the massacre secondhand from Ray Nugent, and he claimed that while in prison, Capone had actually told him that Goetz had been the actual planner of the murder and not Capone. So Capone's like, no, that wasn't me, that was him. While in prison. Now, despite all of this, there is no action taken by FBI or by Chicago police. Part of this could be that most of the men that were involved were already dead by 1935, with the exception of Burke and Maddox. What action are they really going to take? One thing I forgot, I believe Al Capone at this time is also alive. I just, the men that would have been physically involved were, were gone. Right. And Capone was in jail at this time anyway, right? In prison. Yeah, in 1931, he was sentenced to 11 years in federal prison. So he would have been in prison at this time. Anyways, so, like, there's just a lot of, like, yeah, it's information, but what are we going to do with it? We can't prosecute dead people. And the other part is, like, yeah, you've already implicated Burke, and we already believe he was involved, but he's already in custody. So, So what's, like, yeah. To further complicate things, bank robber by the name of Harvey Bailey stated in his 1973 autobiography that he and Burke were actually drinking beer in Illinois at the time of the massacre. Huh? First of all, it was 10.30 a.m. Don't you think it's a little bit early? I mean, but this is also uh, prohibition, so you gotta drink it when you can get it. I guess. Now, there's nothing to corroborate that, and again, Burke actually had, had the guns that were implicated in the murder so to this day the case has technically not been solved many historians still argue whether or not these american boys were involved with the case or different theories and just throughout the course of this whole story i know there's so many mobsters names as suspects in this case i've gone through a lot of names but two of the prime suspects are what are known as the cosa nostra hitman and this is john scalies and albert anselmi In the days following the massacre, witnesses claim to have heard them brag, I am the most powerful man in Chicago. The only thing with this is that John Scalies, he had recently been promoted within his his mob, his clique, whatever you want to call it. He was promoted to a vice president. So he he was growing in power, right? And then the other part of this is Scalies and Anselmi were found dead with Joseph um, uh, Guinta in indiana on may 8th 1929 and my new favorite term is gangland lore so lore gangland lore gangland lore okay yeah now it's believed that capone had killed these three men after discovering they were planning to kill him the rumor is that at a dinner party capone was throwing to honor honor these three men he would produce a bat and just beat them to death there's no easy delivery for that. Okay. Rule number one, just don't try to kill Al Capone. That's your best way of living here. Right? Just don't piss. Get on Capone's good side. Yes. And stay there. By yeah. Any means necessary. Don't be a higher up, though. Like, if Al Capone is like, you need to cut off your left hand and slap yourself with it, I'd be like, oh, well, yes, sir. Would you like me to use a butter knife or a butcher knife? <laughs> just tell me where to go from here. Tell me what to do now. Yes. Yeah. And I did mention earlier this 
that Scalise and Anselmi were announced as suspects by police, but then when they later found him dead, they were like, oh, okay. Um, another theory, which is brought about by criminologist Arthur Bilek, he actually researched this massacre through FBI files, court transcripts, all of the details, and he spent 30 years doing this research. Holy and crap. In 1995, he would state that the Capone henchmen that were involved, and this is his belief, but he believed that it was machine gun Jack McGurn, and this was the man that would assemble the entire group that would actually go through with the murders. Byron Bolton, who is the man that confessed to being involved, he was one of the lookouts. Uh, Jimmy Morna? That's not right. Uh, Morin. I was like, that's not spelled right. Jimmy Morin, who was also a lookout. Jimmy McChrison, who was also a lookout. Tony Accardo, who was a triggerman. Fred Burke, a tri triggerman. Gus Winkler, triggerman. Uh, Fred Goetz, triggerman. Uh, Robert Carey, also a triggerman. And then you have Claude Screwy Maddox. He would provide the transportation and procure a vehicle that looked like a police vehicle. This is his belief. Those are the people he believes were involved. He suspects that the lookouts were supposed to notify Tony Accardo, and he and the other triggermen would then leap into action. Now, Capone and McGurn would then establish alibis. Capone would go off to Florida, can't be involved if he's in Florida, and McGurn would check into a hotel with his wife. Can't be involved if he's busy. And now the theory, in this theory, he, he's able to back some of this by... Um, I'm sorry. His theory is and claims are backed by FBI agent William Romer. Romer had heard claims of Tony Accardo being involved as one of the shooters on several occasions. So this was through Murray the Camel Humphreys, who would wear a wire planted by the FBI, and they could hear them, basically these gang members, talking about how Accardo is involved or was involved or just like it was accepted that he was involved. So it's, it was widely believed that Tony Accardo was involved with the shooting. So those are some of the theories. Those are like the two biggest theories. And officially, this is still unsolved, right? It's never technically linked to Al Capone, though it, it's likely Al Capone. And really, after this whole massacre, Bo Bugs Morin kind of lost control of his organization. He had lost several of his top men, and he just wasn't able to recover. Yeah, he lost like half his board members, his board of directors or whatever right? mobs use. Yeah. And so because of this, Capone would be able to go on and take more control. And he ultimately would run the organized crime in Chicago at the time. And like I said, I didn't want to go into Capone because he is easily his own episode, if not multiple episodes. Right. Yeah, I think so. Oh, for sure. Now, the location where the massacre happened, it was demolished in 1967. And it is now a parking lot for a nursing home. The bricks in which the victims were shot in front of were purchased by a Canadian businessman. He would display these bricks in some crime-related novelty displays, but he would eventually sell, sell some of the individual bricks, but later the uh, remaining bricks were purchased or donated. I didn't get clarity on that, but they are now in the possession of the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. Now that sounds like a place to go. That sounds like a fun museum. There is totally a um, picture of those on the drive. Also, that whole wall was investigated by Ghost Adventures. And you're going to tell me all about it, right? No, I'm not right now. <laughs> because I, I'm not doing paranormal. I'm sorry. Okay, I'll allow it. 
but they I know they did do that. They think that there's from what I remember, if it helps, they believe that there's lingering spirits attached to the wall. Anyways, that is that's my story. What I've learned from this is we need mob nicknames. Yes. What they're gonna be, I don't know. I'm sure it's just the mustache, but Fred Burke really he has got a little Hitler vibe going on there. A little bit, but I do think it's probably just the mustache, though. Maybe the bulging eyeballs. Uh, it was also before Hitler rose to power. So, so Hitler had a Burke mustache. <laughs> I was going to say, I think Hitler had a Burke mustache. <laughs> Burke had it before Hitler tried to make it fashionable. All these guys just look quintessential mob man, though. They do, and I love all mm-hmm. of them. Like, I just love that they just look so stereo, like, my mind, stereotypical mob man. No, yes, stereotypical. There are vests and fedoras and a cigar. Like, picture a mob man and you got it. Yeah, like your typical mob man. They're wonderful. I love them all. Um, There are also pictures of some of the bricks as well as the wall. And I know there were so many names in that story, but, like... I couldn't not involve them because their num- names are wonderful. No, I appreciated the names. I did almost get out a red string, though. I know. <laughs> That's why I tried to always be like, this is this person. Like, this is this person. But I'm always down for a mob nickname because they're yes. always so great. We'll have to think about them. Yes. What are your mob nicknames? Let us know. Yeah. I don't know. Is there a generator? <laughs> oh, I am sure there's a generator mob nickname generator get your mob nickname hold on coming back round trip we went on a little adventure and we just figured out our uh mobster nicknames amanda trigger she is a speakeasy owner for sure that's me yeah i am bryce the godmother apparently according to this generator and i'm a mob wife which makes sense. I mean, I'm not getting involved. I, I can't be involved in murder. Sorry, guys. No, you're just at the speakeasy with me. And we're just like sipping on margaritas. I was going <laughs> to say tequila. So that's fine. Yeah. Um, but that we figured out our names now. If you guys have better ones, you can let us know. But this is just what the Mob Museum yeah. website generator gave us. And I feel like the Mob Museum knows what they're doing. I think so. They've got some bricks and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Something like that. Anyways, that's that's my story. That's all I got for you. Well, I'm glad that you did something Valentine's Day-esque <laughs> because I did not. I was going to try to spin it like I did. Uh, so I can do that. Do you want me to do that? Fully expecting you to do Cupid. I almost <laughs> did Cupid. I really like I really, really thought about it, but I was like, well, well, we haven't done a haunting in a while. So no, we haven't. I got a couple of single ladies here to tell you about. All the single ladies. All the single ladies. Um okay, so it was an accident. I picked a place. <laughs> uh, I picked a place off the spreadsheet and it has literally one haunting. It's the same haunting. A lot of people reported it though, so I just went with it. So what I have today are three ghostly green ladies. Ooh. I also have some other languages, so y'all be nice to me. Okay, okay, here we go. (laughs) The first one is the Chateau de Brissac? Brissac? Brissac. 
Bresic, I think. I listen to it a lot on Google. It's the Chateau de Bresic. It is the tallest castle in France. It's It was medieval originally. It was built in the 11th century. But in the 15th century, the Duke of Bresic had the whole thing torn to the ground and rebuilt in a Renaissance style. The only thing he left from the original castle was two twin medieval towers at the front of the castle. During the French Wars of Religion in the 16th century, the castle was taken over by the eventual King Henry IV, and then he gave it to Charles II, along with the title of Duke of Bresic, as a reward for his support during this time. I guess that's just king things, you know? Like, hey, thanks for helping me get this title. Have a castle. Here you go. Which king do I need to schmooze today to get a castle? Uh, well, let's How see. do I do that? 16th century. So that's roughly a lot of hundred of years ago. The hell is that? 400 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. How? Um, who is the... Wait a minute. France don't have kings anymore. <laughs> You gotta just, go to you gotta go to England. I don't care where. I just want to know which king I got a schmooze. I don't know. You don't I remember his name? Up. No. Is it, I really don't remember his name. Is it Richard? It's surely it's not King Dick. Charles. It's Charles III. That's what it was. Okay. Y'all, we're sorry. We're I'm sorry, sorry, England. Now, during the wars of religion, Chateau de Bresic was really badly damaged. Uh so. The king, again, he was like, here's some money, fix your shit. So they started renovating. Uh, It was passed down for generations until the late 1700s when it was abandoned, ransacked, and damaged again during the French Revolution. Until the Duke of Bresset come back and was like, hey, this is mine. I'm taking it back. And he zhuzhes it up, which, by the way, do you know how to spell zhuzh? With like a J and extra letters. That's what I thought. I Googled it so long because by the end of it, I was determined to learn how to spell zhuzh. It is Z-H-U-Z-H. No, it's not. It is absolutely got two Z's in it. Everybody remember that for the next time you're playing Scrabble. Okay. Oh, there's only one Z in Scrabble, I think. I had to Google J-O-O-G-E to, I don't know, but. That just, it triggered me earlier today. Okay. That's why I got the mob name Trigger, I guess. Z-H-U-Z-H. Isn't it horrible? That's the worst thing I have ever. I have a petition right now to spell that differently. Any other way. You could put a Q in it for all I care. But two Zs and H, no. I found a better spelling. Z-H-O-O-S-H. I'll take that one. I'll take that one. I like that one better. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Anyway, so the the Duke came back, reclaimed it, fixed it all up. As of 2016, it is owned by the 13th Duke of Bresic and is open to the public. You can stay the night here. Fuck yeah, let's go. Oh, I can't afford that shit. So I just say right now, my God, save up for it. I've got to save up too. Okay, cool. Then start saving up. And then by the time we retire, surely we can afford this place. Surely. Yeah. As long as Cody doesn't go, I should be fine. Oh, I just assumed we were leaving the guys. Okay, no, I'm just making sure we're on the same page there. Because, like, what happens if we're not and you bring James and I don't bring Cody? That's really awkward. Oh, wait, shit. James knows a little bit of French. I don't care. 
He's not invited oh. still. <laughs> Good. Okay. Ignorant okay. Americans. We got this. We'll just, we'll do the Google Translate and speak into it and be like, please be right. Hey, that stuff works. We'll figure it out. We got it. So this castle, um, inside it, its longest occupant is not a Duke of Bresic. It is La Dame Vert. I don't know if I said that right. I did my best, y'all. Uh, it is, it translates to the Green Lady. And they believe it to be Charlotte de Brez in 19, and nope, way back then. In 1462, Charlotte and Jacques de Brez were married and they lived together in this castle. These two people could not be more different. Charlotte was said to enjoy a sophisticated life inside the castle, while Jacques was said to live a more active lifestyle. So he was outside, he was hunting. He was doing whatever else rich people did in the he 14th century. He was doing century. like he was Jousting. doing the resorting resorty stuff that like our mm. mobsters did. So hunting, fishing, jousting, falconry. They did that then, right? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, they belladonna. Surely they did some of that. They did something. They were outside yeah. doing active things. Yeah, they were outside in the sun. Yeah. Uh, so on May thirty first, fourteen seventy seven. Jacques comes home from a hunting trip. He had dinner with Charlotte, and then they both went to their separate bedrooms because it's the 1400s, y'all. You know what? I do wish some days I had a separate bedroom so I could at least have somewhere to escape to when Cody is snoring so loud that I cannot sleep. Oh, just uh, shove something up his nose. That's all you gotta do. Finger, toe. Here's the issue is he doesn't snore from his nose. Oh, that's it's... even better. Tape his mouth shut. Problem solved. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just tape it all shut. Yeah. Or just smother him with a pillow. You know, either or. It's up to you. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Um, so they went to their separate bedrooms. And the story goes that Jacques was woken up in the middle of the night when a servant runs into the room, shakes him awake, and was like, I don't know what they said back then. My Lord. I don't know. Uh, Charlotte is having an affair with Pierre de Laverne. Way to rat her out, jerk. That's what I thought. Like, what? this is still your master. Like, you little brown noser. Okay. Trying to get him good. What do you think is going to happen here? You're going to rip a family apart. They don't love each other. It was said that this was like a very political, strategic marriage. Like, just let them do their thing. He's out hunting. She's out humping. I don't know. Uh, just let the hunting and humping happen, okay? Just, yeah. Let's just hunt and hunch and everyone's happy. Did he get upset? A little. So the story unfolds in one of two ways. One story says that Jacques was immediately enraged, burst into her room, found them in bed together, and was so angry that he drew his sword and butchered them in bed. Which I'm so oh. confused as to why you had a sword on you. Is that like proper sleep attire? Duh. I'm sure it is. Like back in the 14th. <laughs> that's what you did back then. You got up, you put on your slippers, you put on your sword, and you barge into someone's bedroom. I'm sure though he was probably like, let me get my sword because if this if I need to um stabby stabby people, I'm prepared. <laughs> that's you know what? That makes sense, seeing as how Brown Nose McGee over here just ran in and told him that his wife was cheating on him. 
Well, the other story, um, this one went a little differently. The other story says that Jacques killed Pierre and then found Charlotte in the chapel tower where he strangled her with his bare hands and threw her body out the window. So neither of them are good stories. Neither of them are great, no. Her husband was said to have moved out of the castle not long after killing his wife. And this also varied. Because he was being haunted. That's for sure a fact. Yeah. (laughs) One of them said that the king arrested him because, like I said, Charlotte was very important. I thought I wrote that down in here. Uh, But she was the illegitimate child of... Son of a bitch. I'm sorry. Hold on. Of some son of a bitch. (laughs) Is that what you're telling me? (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to misspeak because she's like... The half-sister of the king and the something. She's important to someone, and that's what matters. So she was the half-sister of Louis the Eleventh of France, and she was also the illegitimate daughter of Charles of six Charles the Seventh of France. So she was she was connected to super important people. So when it got out that he killed her. It was said that the king was like, uh, you can't do that. So they arrested him. And the king was like, try again. Yeah, exactly. Like, go uh, go get that man. I don't care if she's cheating on you. That's my family, bruh. Exactly. Family first. He even said bruh? Yeah, he said bruh. Okay. He said bruh AF. Sounds about right. But he said it with a French accent. I don't know how to do it, so I'm not. I'm, yeah, I wouldn't even attempt it with a French accent. Wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> That's what she was getting. Yeah, and it wasn't from him. So, okay, y'all, I'm sorry. Uh, so the other one, you actually hit the nail on the head. It was said that Jacques was driven mad by the sound of his wife and her lover's constant moans. He heard them all the time through. Okay, no, not like, no, 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 no. Stop. Stop laughing. That's not what I meant. Not what I meant. Moans like, like, oh, I'm dead and you killed me. Moans. Not, not like a fit of passion. Either of them would be awful, so it doesn't matter which one. I just think one might be a little worse than the other. Which one is worse? Okay, we're moving right on along. So yeah, you one set yourself up for that one. I don't want to hear it. I just okay. That honestly did not occur to me until you started giggling profusely, <laughs> like the child I am. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Now, anyway, people say that the Green Lady has haunted Chateau de Bressic since the late 14th century. The Green Lady is a full-bodied apparition wearing a green dress. Her face has big, gaping black holes where her eyes and nose should be. I don't like that. I hate it. Absolutely hate it. I'm sorry. I changed my mind. We're not going there. She has been seen on the staircase leading from the the chapel to the tower, sometimes going up, sometimes going down. She's also been seen in the chapel, and she can be heard. I don't even want to say it. She can be heard moaning in the late night, early morning hours. And she actually, we might be okay in this, this castle because she almost exclusively shows herself to men. Well, she's, she's got other items on her agenda and we're not part of those items. 
I can't say that I'm upset about that. I'm not upset either. I'm fine with it. Okay. So next, let's go to Scotland. Oh, we're jumping right on over. Okay. We're going to, I hope I'm saying this right, Crethis Castle. And this castle has been inhabited by the Burnett family for over 350 years. Damn. Yeah. It was built by Alexander Burnett in 1596, but the land was given to them like way before that. Another wing was added in the 18th century. Sir James Burnett gave the castle to the National Trust of Scotland in 1951, but the family still lives in it. And from my understanding, this is like, it's kind of like a museum type deal. The National Trust of Scotland describes themselves as the conservation charity that protects and promotes Scotland's natural and cultural heritage for present and future generations to enjoy. This sounds like a sweet deal. Like, hey, I'm going to give you this castle. You are in charge of keeping it ship shape, but I'm going to live in it. Yeah, that'd be a pretty good deal, too. Like, yeah. I'll keep it ship shape. I want rent free and I want to be paid. Exactly. That's that's kind of what this sounds like. I mean. I, I guess I probably would not complain about that deal. Oh, I would have given it to him like years ago. And, oh, case in point, uh, January 6th of 1966, a fire damaged parts of the castle and the National Trust's resident architect decided to rebuild the Queen Anne wing, but they had to demolish a separate wing, the Victorian wing, due to this fire. The castle is open to the public year-round to visit or stay the night in. It's Freaking gorgeous. Now, the green lady in this castle, she is also wearing green because, you know, that's why we call her the green lady. She's wearing a green robe and she is said to glide across the room. And they named this room for her. They call it the green lady room. That's really original. I thought so. But. Yeah, no, I don't know. I feel like you could come up with something a little different. And also, I feel like this lady deserves respect as well. That's all I'm going to say this. Okay. They all deserve respect. She said to glide across the room, she stops by the fireplace and she bends to pick up a baby out of thin air. So she bends over and then she just comes back up and she's carrying a baby. Nope. And nope. she can be seen cradling the baby. Nope. She's also said to be a green mist that appears to pick up a childlike figure and carry it into the fireplace. Gee, that's a safe place for a child. That might be like more the burning baby room at this point. Uh, so during oh, renovations God. in the 1800s, it's said that they found the skeleton of a woman and an infant under the hearth of this fireplace. I didn't mean that to be like a real thing. I just meant like she's being a dick to her baby. And then you go and do that. Look how now we're even. Okay. Because <laughs> your story was full of it. It's not my fault that you kept talking about gang members before I could finish the story. I have things to say. I need to be heard. Okay. You better be happy that was a 1920s and none of them are coming for us now. Oh, no, I'm giving up. I'm one of you, remember? I own the speakeasy. <laughs> yeah, Amanda the Trigger. Yeah. Amanda will do whatever she needs to at this point. She's That's does why they not call care. me the trigger. Because I am quick <laughs> to pull the trigger on that glass. Like, what? you need another one? Let's go. I got you. 
It is already refilled before you've even put it down. Before it's even empty, it's full. Yeah. Just leave it to me. (laughs) (laughs) The green lady in Crethus Castle, she is said to never hurt anybody other than scaring the crap out of them. Oh, I really appreciate that. She's said to be seen along with temperature fluctuation and a sense of dread. She frequently reveals herself to the Burnett family who have just, they're like, yeah, she lives here. It is what it is. They're just like, yeah, that's our roommate. She's late on rent a few Yeah, both families from both of these castles, they're just, they're like, yeah, there's a ghost here. Cool. I, I would not be that calm. I'd be like, can we get someone to get rid of said ghost? I mean, I guess if you live there for hundreds of years, you just kind of accept your fate. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. Um, the Burnett family, however, they believe yeah. the green lady to represent death or disaster when they see her. Well, so she's like the Mothman. Yes, but more tragic. They, most people believe that the bones were, were belonged, oh my gosh, most people believe that the bones belong to a servant girl who became pregnant by a member of the Burnett family in the mid 1600s. And most people that believe this to be true also believe that both mother and child were killed to save the Burnett's reputation. Um, Even Queen Victoria of the United Kingdom was said to have witnessed this green lady. Oh, the last green lady I have for you tonight is the Green Lady of Lavender Mountain Road. Does that not sound like... I don't... It sounds like a mixed drink or something. It sounds so wonderful. It just sounds like it's, like you're on the road to a resort. Well, I mean, kind of? Like, that's what that... Lavender Mountain. I feel like I should be going there to relax. Yeah. I can, I can see that. This place does look pretty freaking relaxing in a way. Is this the Berry College one? It is. Yes, okay. it is the Berry College. Um, Follow up question: Are the mountains covered in lavender? I don't believe so. This is in Georgia, the the state, Georgia of the United States. I don't know if lavender grows there or not, but from the pictures that I saw online, I don't believe so. But I will say this college is freaking huge. It is the Biggest college in the world. Oh, is it like officially the biggest college in the world? Absolutely. Yes. The college, it's over 30,000 acres. Damn. <laughs> I did Google it too, by the way. I might have been wrong. I think I said 30,000. Uh, Barry's campus, as of today, is 27,000 acres. Continuous. Yeah. This is the biggest continuous like college. Is it still running as a college? Oh, yes. It is a four-year liberal arts college, and it was founded in 1902. Can we go there? (laughs) I would love to, because here's another really interesting fact I found. Barry College has been used to film multiple movies, including Sweet Home Alabama, Remember the Titans, and the most recent I could find was Stranger Things. The scenes from Pennhurst Mental Hospital were filmed at Barry College. I don't know if that makes me want to go there more or less. Uh, Well, they did also say that there was no mental hospital at Barry College. 
Oh, okay, okay. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> so on Barry College, there on the campus, there is a road that's three miles long, and it connects the mountain campus to the main campus. One story says that a freshman was in the car with her boyfriend going down this road in 1988 when they got into an argument. And she told him, pull over, let me out, I'm walking home. And this jerkwad did it. He pulled over, he put her out of the car, and then he drove off. He's like, all right, bye. I, yeah, like, don't do that to people. <laughs> so he eventually turned around, um, allegedly after maybe just a few minutes, he turned around, he felt guilty, and he went back to get her. For whatever reason, he was said to have only looked away from the road for a few seconds. Some people claim that he looked down. Other people claim that he drove through some abnormally thick fog. For whatever reason, he could not see and he ended up hitting her. And she died from a fatal head injury. Real convenient that you didn't see her. Uh-huh. After getting into an argument. And leaving her on the side of the road. You know what they say. The husband did it. The husband always did it. The, Even though they uh, The boyfriend married. did it. The boyfriend definitely did it. Another account claims that the girl was actually riding her bicycle when she was struck by a vehicle. Or she was hit head on by her boyfriend who was riding another bicycle. Which I find less believable. But that's just me. That makes no sense. No, I didn't think so either. But I did he find just, that story more than once. It would be hilarious. I'm sorry. Like, hilarious in, like, my mind had she not passed away tragically. That they're both riding bicycles. He get They get in a fight. He pedals ahead of her <laughs> and then turns around to go ram her on the bicycle. And I mean, she's watching him do this. That's almost literally what they said. They got into an argument. He went on ahead and then turned around. And somehow they got into a head-on collision. And she died from a fatal head injury. See, and um, that's the part that I don't think is like funny. It's the visual of him getting mad. In my visual, mm -hmm. he tips over from anger, too. I like that. I hope he got yeah. hurt. That's, that's a horrible thing to say. But, I mean, in this situation, in the mid-1980s, a group of students were said to be using a Ouija board to contact the green lady. And the board told the group that her name was Becky Stanson. So they took this name to the county records and they looked it up. And they found that in 1923, a woman named Becky Stanton died in a house fire very close to this road. The name was not the same, but it was literally one letter difference. That's eerie. I'm going to just say this. Now that I know they played with a Ouija board on the property, we can't go to that college. Oh, hell no. I will never go there. Which, I mean, that's probably every college. Somebody somewhere has been in college playing with a Ouija board. I already know. We all know that person. We can only do online colleges because of that. Yeah. Bree, is that you? You ever play with a Ouija board while you were at... Oh, if anyone would do it, Bree, we know oh, you yeah. would do it. You were in college playing with a Ouija board. We already know. Don't, you don't even have to lie to us. It's fine. It's fine. We, we just won't go to that college ever for any reason. Our kids want to go there. Bye. Absolutely. No, you found another college. You know what? I'm not like even 47 in this state. I'm saying go for it. I don't give a shit. Have fun. I'm not pack. I'm not helping you move. <laughs> I will not step foot on that <laughs> campus, but you... I will leave your bed on the curb. You can drag it. <laughs> I don't care how far it is, how many acres it is. Bye.
Better yet, you know what? Just take the car. No, that's my car. I'm paying for it. Oh, I'm getting a new car. You can have this car. Okay, but I can sell this car to help me fund the new car. I fully plan on giving my kids something just so I don't have to take them back and forth. No, that's fine. They can get their own something. That's why they get summer jobs. Okay, that's a fair point. Yeah. The green lady of Barry College is seen as either a lone green fog cloud, which I hate, or a young woman with no eyes and a green tint to her skin. She Don't takes whichever form she wants. She's like, I'm in the mood for this. So mm-hmm. here you go. She's also said to be seen either suddenly in front of your car as you're driving or watching you leave in your rearview mirror. I don't know which one of those I like less, to be honest. I like neither of them equally because that's, can you imagine driving along the road? It's dark and all of a sudden this green lady pops up out of nowhere. You're slamming on your brakes. No, on a mountain road at night. Pedal to the metal at that point. Yeah, no. I, you know what? I was actually late for class yesterday, and I need to get there right now. Yeah. Um, or driving, and I look in my rearview mirror, and there's something green and eerie behind me. Again, pedal to the metal. Bye. Mm-hmm. And there is one more way she's claimed to be seen. If you go to the spot where she died at night and call to her... She said to appear as a glowing green light in the trees. I'm not, I'm not calling her. I don't have her number. <laughs> You're not going to like info it? No, I'm not going <laughs> to call her in any way, shape or form. I'm just going to say, thank you, ma'am. I appreciate your input. I don't ever want to see you again. Well, unfortunately, um, that's all I have. Well, thank God. <laughs> For the green we're, ladies. We're done with the three ghostly green ladies. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. What is, okay, what is the picture with the smiling people? Okay, so if you look, oh boy, if you look at that picture, what do you see? Well, I see three people. Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to be looking at the background, I assume? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure because it's super blurry, so I don't know. I don't know exactly which one I'm looking at, but this doorway that I'm seeing looks like maybe someone's like, that's a person in a dress. But I also think that's just shadowing. Nailed it. Yeah. That's um, what it is. That is at, oh, how did they say it? Kratis Castle, I think. Um, Hold on. That I'm going to. Scottish Castle. And they do claim that that is the green lady. She's not green. Uh, yeah. I don't even see a lady. I just see, um, like, shadowing from, like, how it's built. And I just, on the drive, I just, like, circled it, commented on it. Mm-hmm. Is that the right spot? This is not a lady. Yes, that's the right spot. In the okay. little doorway there. You're going to have to go out and go back in because I did another one where it actually looks like there could be, like, another person in the background. Okay, hold on. That's creepy. Did you this not see not that green. one? I didn't see that one. That dead ass looks like a whole ass person holding a bouquet of flowers. Right? And maybe it is a person coming around a corner. I don't know what's right there, but that look, that one's eerier to me than the, the other one. Yeah. Because the other one looks like a bad computer editing job. And I know this because I edit videos occasionally and they're <laughs> not good. So, <laughs> See, and to me, it just looks like shadowing. Like, it looks just like that's how the shadows and the sun gets through to that area. 
Mm-hmm. Because like there's not windows right there, so it would just be the sun hitting there. Yeah, it's, I can see that. Yeah, and so for anyone that looks at this picture, if you look between the two women's heads, just like right between them, there's like another. It looks like a figure to me where it's like head person. It doesn't look like he's got anything below his knees, but he does look like he's holding a bouquet of flowers or something. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna like I'll spot these two out. I'll throw some squares in there. To show square it what up. We're talking about, yeah. Square yeah. up. She'll square it up for you. I won't. <laughs> I will just let you use your imaginations. How's that sound? That sounds good. I didn't. I'm glad you saw that though, because I didn't yeah. even see that. That's a little creepy. That's why I was like, well, I don't know which one because the one just looks like it's a shadow, but I could tell how people would be like, "That's a woman." Like, no, because first of all, I don't see a head. Secondly, she's not green. I'm wondering if that's maybe what they were talking about to begin with anyway, what you saw. And maybe the people, because uh, I was scrolling through like the comments, because you can find this picture a lot. And as I scrolled through the comments, people were like, no, you're crazy. And I'm like, I'm kind of crazy. But I, I think just, maybe you caught the right thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. But all right, all right. I don't like the three single green ladies. Well, that's what we have tonight for you. Single green okay. ladies. All the single ladies. Mobsters and the single ladies. Got it. Mm-hmm. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to Hell on Hills Podcast. To see pictures from this episode, you can follow us on Instagram, Hell on Hills Podcast, Twitter, Hell on Hills Pod, or Facebook by searching Hell on Hills Podcast. You can find us on Linktree as well by typing in Hell on Hills Podcast. If you want to support us, please like, review, rate, share, and subscribe on your preferred listening platforms. If you want to take your support one step further so we can create more content for you, you can donate through Patreon where we're working to release specials for our patrons. If you have your own true crime or paranormal story suggestions or just words of encouragement, please email us at hellandhealspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Bye. Bye.